Romans 15, I'll be reading from verses 15 uh, through uh, 26. But before we read God's word, let us pray. Our great God and heavenly Father, we thank thee that we can come into thy presence this day. We thank thee that we can hear thy voice through thy holy scripture, that we can learn much from thee in terms of your will uh, for the church. We thank thee that thou hast called us to, to be worshipers of thee, uh, to be disciples of thee, to be members of Christ's body, uh, to be called to be witnesses, to be members of a mission society. We thank thee for all these things. We thank thee uh, that we are sheep under your care. We thank thee for the chief shepherd. We thank thee for the under shepherds, the ambassadors that thou hast called to service as thy people. Teach us much, we pray, in this hour. Open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things from your law. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. amen. Okay, Romans chapter 15, verses 15 and following. Let us hear God's word. Nevertheless, brethren, I have written the more boldly unto you in some sort as putting you in mind because of the grace that is given to me of God, that I should be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering the gospel of God, that the offering up of the Gentiles might be acceptable, being sanctified by the Holy Ghost. I have therefore, whereof I may glory through Jesus Christ in those things which pertain to God. For I will not dare to speak of anything of those things which Christ hath not wrought by me to make the Gentiles obedient by word and deed, through mighty signs and wonders and by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and round about to Iconium have I fully preached the gospel of Christ, Yea, so have I strived to preach the gospel, not where Christ was named, lest I should build upon another man's foundation, but as it is written, to whom he was not spoken of, they shall see, and they that have not heard shall understand. For which cause also I have been much hindered from coming to you. But now having no more place in these parts, and having a great desire these many years to come unto you, whensoever I take my journey into Spain, I will come to you. For I trust to see you in my journey, and be brought on my way thitherward by you, if first I be somewhat filled with your company. But now I go unto Jerusalem to minister unto the saints, for it hath pleased them of Macedonia and Achaia to make a certain contribution for the poor saints which are at Jerusalem. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inspired word. Now before we begin to look at this passage briefly uh, and consider uh, the tasks of missions, I thought it might be helpful in introduction just to try to transition from the lecture we just heard. And so I would inform you that I'm a graduate of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary, have served on the board there, I think, for almost 20 years at present. And you may not be aware of this. I know uh, Pastor Rudell was not, that originally uh, the founders of Greenville Seminary named the seminary Thornwell Seminary. 
uh, but the liberal Presbyterian church had a foundation called Thornwell House and chose to sue uh, the, the members of the, the original board. Uh, and rather than be distracted with that lawsuit, um, chose to change the name to Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. But my two primary professors, Dr. Smith, Dr. Morton Smith, and C. Greg Singer, uh, were both great lovers of Thornwell. And so those sections that your pastor mentioned of Volume 4, that was all part of our curriculum uh, and remains part of the curriculum uh, in Greenville. So there are uh, men in the PCA that have graduated from that seminary that still hold the views uh, of uh, your leaders, your elders, uh, deacons, and this congregation. Uh, so that's encouraging, uh, and we need to pray uh, in that regard. Um, let me briefly review uh, what we covered last night. I mentioned that uh, in my studies of missions, I've kind of concluded there, that there are six primary areas or loci of missions which need to be considered uh, when we seek to systematize what the scripture teaches about uh, missions, evangelism and missions. We looked at five uh, particular areas last night just to highlight some of the things that we need to think about uh, as we seek uh, reform in our own lives uh, and as we think about what would reform look like amongst reformed churches uh, in this nation. We considered uh, the centrality of church planting. Uh, it's very easy to move away from the centrality of church planting in uh, missions work. We looked at the church being the agent and the church as presbytery through committees, but not through boards as being the agent which church planting is to take place. We considered also then the qualifications of missionaries in general, at least for the majority of those that we would call missionaries, those that would be ministers of the gospel, trained as ministers with ministerial experience in their own culture before going uh, into another culture to assist in church planting. Then we also considered the motives for missions. Uh, they're all fairly clear-cut, but the reality is uh, we can drift in our motives regarding why we do what we do. Uh, in evangelism and in the mission field. And then lastly, we considered the goals of missions. I did have a few questions from some of you regarding those goals last night, so I just want to make it clear. We certainly think that the three selves of Nevius are valid. They are certainly marks of what we want to see. We do want to see self-sustaining, self-propagating, and self-governing indigenous churches, no doubt. But many missionary organizations and agencies today have taken those three and added another three, I said, that are invalid, right? Size, speed, scope, or multiplication. So that, I wanted to make that clear. I also wanted to suggest that not only are the three S's valuable and three selves and the three S's not, but there are some other goals to church planting, and that is we want to see churches that are healthy like the churches that are sending us. We want them to be concerned that worship is carried out in accordance with God's word and that preaching is centrality, central in that worship. We are concerned about discipleship and Christian education of the whole body 
of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're concerned about communion of saints or fellowship or community. Um, that is part of what makes a healthy congregation. We don't learn as isolated individuals. We learn together as a community and as we interact with one another. God's ordained it that way. We're members of the body. Each of us is to play our part, our role, our place and station that the church as a whole might flourish. And so corporate sanctification and individual sanctification coalesce in Ephesians chapter 4. And in that chapter, we still see the centrality of the teaching offices throughout biblical history, and yet we still see the diversity of gift and the place that every member is to play in carrying out the role that they have in the congregation as well as speaking truth in love to one another. And we also see that the church is to be a witnessing church or self-propagating, and we also understand that that's all to be carried out uh, through under-shepherds that are to serve under the chief shepherd in guiding the corporate congregation, presbyteries, in those matters of worship, discipleship, fellowship, and witness. So now, what I'd like to do is just consider one more major area uh, of thought. And this is still, again, somewhat theoretical. Um, After lunch, we'll get a little bit more practical. But what I want you to recognize, and I'm just kind of giving you a little bit of autobiographical sketch of my journey uh, into the theory of missions and the practice of missions. So at conversion, I was always greatly interested uh, in missions, read many missionary books in my early Christian days as a student at the University of Alabama, but never sensed a call to the gospel ministry in foreign lands. Was interested in serving as a ruling elder and as, as, as uh, asked by a number of people to consider it at the age of 30, uh, I said that I would accept that offer if the congregation, the current elders, were prepared to recommend that I go to let me go to school at Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary to get a certificate for, of ruling elder. So basically, I, my understanding then as it is today is that oftentimes the qualifications and the educational level for ruling elders is relatively low in the church in general right so oftentimes ruling elders really serve more as deacons and the minister still runs the show uh, in many so-called presbyterian churches so i wanted to study to be a good biblical ruling elder as i did that after a couple years dr singer and dr Uh, Smith both encouraged me to go on and get my Masters of Divinity, and I did, still not thinking I was called to the ministry. As I I completed, I sensed a call and congregation, a group of people in Charlotte were interested in me serving them. Then about 10 years ago, maybe a little bit less than that, my presbytery asked me to go and go on an exploratory visit in Liberia still not sensing any call to missions. Uh, in that time, God both coalesced an inner call as well as an outward call in the presbytery, and now I serve there. But in the meantime, I was studying missions and trying to learn more about all that's been written in missions, what's good, what's bad, uh, what's to be learned from experience, uh, natural revelation, but trying desperately 
to be more brought into foundational principles from the scriptures themselves and solid Reformed histories. It's informed by solid biblical Reformed and Presbyterian church history. That's what I've sought to do. But I would say that a passage like Psalm 119, 59, uh, and 60 has been helpful. I thought on my ways and turned my feet unto thy testimonies. I made haste and delayed not to keep thy commandments. So what I would suggest is that putting principles to practice um, sometimes shows that the principle you thought you understood you don't understand as well as you did. And it hones your understanding. It, It refines your theory and then you go practice again. And so that's why uh, when the Lord allowed me through the presbytery to start this mission work in Liberia, we called it the Liberia Project. I kind of regret calling it that at this point. It seems very clinical uh, and mechanical. It, it could be viewed as everybody's a project. Um, and to be honest, every now and then as a pastor, sometimes somebody walks through the door and you say, you know, that's 20 years of trouble, I think uh, Ted Donnelly said one time. <laughs> but that's not what, you know, he said, he, he admitted, and I would admit when we think that to ourselves, we, we're being very carnal, right? People aren't projects. They are not projects. But my thought at the time was that we were going to do projects. It was going to be a portfolio of efforts, mission efforts there, which would be reevaluated every year. Uh, through the missions committee, presented to the presbytery, and that those projects would evolve or be unplugged and new projects might be started. Um, So that was the thought, that it's really a portfolio of little works, little things we're doing to try to promote primarily the planting of solidly reformed and Presbyterian churches in the country of Liberia. So for what that's worth, I hope that helps as we think about practice. So when I began studying, I studied for several years, and then I thought it became clear to me that we were going to need to have men that had an MDiv degree in Liberia. We're going to need indigenous men to graduate ABC and then to go on in theological education and have a Master's of Divinity. It was going to be required for them to be professors at African Bible College so they could teach future ministers, uh, and then it would give them obviously what they needed in terms of the educational knowledge, right? And it needed to be more than theological education. It needed to include ministerial training. It needed to include the observation of ministers doing the work of preaching and teaching and leading synods and presbyteries and sessions and deacons meetings. And then it was going to require someone like that observing them going through those motions and evaluating, critiquing, and then them improving, right? That's the way we would learn any trade today, right? There's a piece of classroom work, but then we've got to watch a master. Then we have to have the master watch us. Sometimes we get so good that we need a new master, humanly speaking, right? My son, my oldest son once took up violin, um, and he was becoming so good that his first... A teacher said, "Uh, Tim and Joy, you need to find another teacher. I recommend the second chair 
in the Charlotte Orchestra. He's doing some teaching. Here's his number. Please call him. Timothy's got to the point where he needs somebody else. Right? That happens sometimes. But that had to happen. And so it became clear to me I needed to get my doctorate. And so as I thought through it, chose Whitfield. And as I worked out details with um, Dr. Talbot, my original uh, capstone project was to develop a course of 24 lectures given in Liberia on church planting. I kind of went beyond that uh, after that. But as I thought about what were the tasks of church planting, it became clear to me as I was preparing those lectures, I can't start there. Because in Liberia, you've got a building of a church constituting about 40% of the population are professed believers. But the church looked a lot like most buildings in Liberia, three or four-story buildings. They were teetering. They looked like the Leaning Tower of Pisa. They weren't completely finished off. And maybe some people are living on the bottom floor, but they've never finished enough on the next floors. The foundations weren't built very well. And so we concluded, hey, we've got a lot of foundation work to do. And this is foundation repair work. So this is underground, it's dirty, and, but it's got to be done if the building's not going to fall down. And so that is what we started to think about. And so as I did, I said, you know, I'm going to have to just teach on basic things on church membership. I'm going to have to teach on church leadership. And then I can teach on church planting. So the first eight lectures I gave were on church membership. We discussed who are, who are church members, professed believers, children of professed believers. Then we talked about concerns of membership interviews, directions for conducting membership interviews. None of these leaders of these churches had any thoughts about these things. Then I had to go over in two lectures, what are the fundamental tenets of the faith? What are the kind of questions you should be asking in a membership interview of an adult? Then we discussed briefly the privileges and responsibilities of church members. The church leaders in these churches there in Liberia that had some interest in reforming had to understand these things so they actually had a valid membership list so they could actually decide who could nominate and elect officers in their churches rather than just the self-appointed chieftain that was the pastor and for many of them was the pastor because being a pastor was one of the three ways you could make money in Liberia. You could be either given a civil job by somebody that's already in the government, you could start a school, or you could start a church. The three most likely ways to earn a living in Liberia. Most of the other men are sitting on the sidewalk somewhere drinking palm wine all day, and there's very few laborers there in that community. And there are communities like that uh, all over the U.S., we, we just tend to fail to recognize that. But they're, they're amongst us, right? And we kind of see little signs of it sometimes. I know I was driving through Charlotte. Joy and I were uh, yesterday morning very early in a part of Charlotte that hardly was, was just, it was just trees and fields uh, 10 years ago when we left there. And now... It's all developed, and I'm past the church. It's just a big old building. 
Rod of God Ministries, not church. Some man and some woman, pastors. Right? Is it a church? Is it not? Did they self-appoint themselves? Most likely. So then we went into church leadership. We discussed the titles and types of elders, or the offices of pastor, teacher, and ruling elders. Discussed the qualifications, the duties of elders, the additional duties of pastors. Pastors have additional duties beyond the duties of, of an elder. We discussed the qualification duties of deacons. We discussed the courts of the church. Because that has to be established in the current churches if they're going to go plant other churches that are going to be healthy. They've got to get healthy themselves. I know quite a few times um, in the African Bible College and in most of evangelicalism there, they have been affected by these three S's that I talked about. They've been affected by the church planting movement and the disciple making movement. That everything's got to happen fast. And now it's no longer that they have to tell some white man they've had this many people walk the aisle into Jesus film. Now they have to tell them how many churches they planted to get more money. That's what works now. So in a haste, that's what they want to do. But I, I've used the illustration with the young men there that are considering church planting. I'm going to say, can two young children, 12 years old, could they have a child? And usually nobody wants the answer. So I say, could they have a child? And then they start, yeah, they could. And I say, and what's the likelihood of that child being healthy in Africa? And what's the likelihood of those parents being able to raise that child appropriately in a Christian home? Are they prepared to be good parents at 12? Of course not. They're like, no, no, no. And I said, wouldn't it be better... Instead of you doing that in your village five years ago, six years ago, aren't you glad you're here in school? And don't you need to finish school? Don't you need to find a woman that has, is like-minded to you? Does it, don't you need to grow spiritually? Don't you need to understand what marriage is all about and what raising children is about? Yes, 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 yes. And then I said, well, why don't you plant churches that way? Why don't you mature once you get your church healthy before you jump in to try and plant more unhealthy churches like yours that makes sense so as i began to think about the tasks i came up with about 12 or 13 i think there are 12 chairs there so children just imagine there's some of you that are like my age you might remember this act is probably on the Ed Sullivan show, and you know you might see it at a circus or something. Somebody spinning plates, right? He starts one, starts another, starts another. Well, I would argue church planting is like 12 or 13 plates, tasks that have to be carried out. And you don't do one and then move to stage two and then do stage three. You start one, and when it's going, then you get two going. When two gets going, you go to three. Then to four, then you got to go back to one. You got to keep the other spinning. Right? So, church planting in a total virgin area is you start plate one. This church was planted. Correct me, right, Pastor? You're the first pastor here. So, you kind of started with 
you didn't come from a total virgin situation, so you may have had a few of those plates started at the beginning, but you didn't necessarily have all 12 going immediately. But in a virgin situation, you're just starting. And even there, a presbytery's got to think about where are we going? Are we going to do some exploratory visit? Once we do and we sense, hey, there's a, something we can do there that God has called us to and we're fitting a certain place there, um, then we've got to decide what's involved. Is there language study involved? There's definitely culture study involved. We also have to learn what evangelical churches and reformed churches are there and what they're doing. Right? We don't appreciate reformed churches planting churches right around us with not notifying us, not asking us about the individuals involved in that church plant. We don't want to do that in our country. We shouldn't want to do that in another country either. So there's planning. But once you get through planning, in that planning phase or maybe another phase, you've got to think about translation. Are these people going to be able to understand? Do they have a Bible in their own language? Do they know English, right? And Based on that, you're going to come to different conclusions. The man we send is going to have to be a translator. They have a great translation in their language. Or maybe they have a pretty weak translation, and we're going to have to utilize that for the time being. But at least it exists, and we'll go from there. And as the man learns the language and finds legitimate translators, eventually... Maybe the Westerner will learn the language. Maybe not. Maybe we'll find indigenous people to do the translations. Make sense? So that's the kind of decisions that have to be made up front. But then you get there, there's evangelistic preaching and teaching. And it doesn't all have to be preaching. Certainly we see Jesus uh, in the Gospels using evangelistic preaching and evangelistic conversations. Plenty of evangelistic conversations. So we get that going. Well, what happens when you make disciples through evangelistic preaching and disciples? You've got to baptize them. The disciples understood, right, the Great Commission by these things first. And then we're going to see how they expanded teaching all things, what that looks like. What's that, what's that third prong of the Great Commission look like? And I would argue you cannot separate the three prongs of the Great Commission. You can't just do evangelistic preaching and leave people not incorporated into the church. Right? You can't incorporate them in the church and then just not teach them. All three have to be there. And when we're doing this, right, you, if it's not totally virgin soil, you have to decide, are we going to church plant or are we going to work with the churches that are there or both? Which, what are we doing? One or the other or both. And I'd like to describe the both or helping churches that exist as helping little sister. Kind of the parallel of Song of Songs 8, 8, and 9. We've talk, Pastor and I have talked about that some uh, at times. The place to help churches that are willing to reform. And I think that's kind of following the pattern loosely of Paul going first to the synagogues in strategic cities. Right? People have been exposed to the word. Uh, he has, they have some presuppositions that are biblical. He goes there, sees what will happen. And oftentimes what happened, some followed him, some didn't. But I think we might have an example in Berea, maybe even in Thessalonica, which wasn't as strong as Berea, uh, but 
In 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul's telling the people to esteem their leaders. He doesn't call them elders at the point, but it's that, that epistle's probably only six months after he visited there at most. So it's very possible there was a morphing of a, a Jewish synagogue to a New Testament synagogue. Sometimes that'll happen. So that was our intent, and we did a lot of that work. Maybe we'll talk a little bit more about that after lunch. So incorporation. And then, obviously, there's got to be more edificational teaching. And I think if we look at what Paul did in the first missionary journey, we've got to conclude, sometimes we have to read between the lines in Scripture. Sometimes we have, we have to be careful when we do. But I would just ask you, do you think when Paul and Barnabas on the first missionary journey came to Pisidia, Antioch, preached the gospel, and then went on further, do you think they gave them any directions about what to do on the Lord's Day? I certainly think they did. Do you think they assigned a few men to kind of guide those services and anything else that might have been going on during the week? I think it's, the answer is obvious, right? There had to be. And so that instruction has to be given to churches that are now meeting indigenously where you're not going to leave a Westerner there every week, every day of the week. Then at some point, as you're watching, I would contend in some ways, Paul had certain advantages we don't. Right? Where he was in the first missionary journey, people understood him. He didn't have to have translators. He knew the languages. He knew the culture. We don't have that advantage. We do have an advantage, and we can use technology to an advantage. We can use recorded sermons and books so that somebody in a village that can read well and listen can prepare and then exhort using solid material that's been provided from them to the West. Right? And that's what, you usually, that's what we've tried to do in church planting situations um, until there are qualified men to be able to do it on their own. So having done that, where does Paul go next? After he, uh, tra- he and Barnabas travel in a clockwise position in the first missionary journey, they then return counterclockwise and come back and they ordain elders in every place. So obviously you have to do that. So you see the different plates spinning? You got preaching spinning. You got incorporation through baptizing spinning. You've got other churches where you're having to give them some order for worship when they don't have officers in place yet. Now you're ordaining elders in some places. Do you have to have deacons right away? Somebody say yeah or nay. Don't have to. I think there's an example when you compare 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, I think it becomes pretty obvious that in an initial planting in Crete, Paul did not think it necessary to have deacons in those congregations immediately. But when he's writing Timothy later in a much larger metropolitan area where there's already churches plural and there's a presbytery at Ephesus, and very likely there may have been a maintaining of a ministerial academy maybe no longer at the school of Tyrannus, but I can't believe it stopped there. In Acts 19, uh, when we read about Paul's work in Ephesus, it says the whole region heard the word of God. I think that included, 
a man that went down to Colossae and became the pastor there. And I believe there were other churches spread through that area, right? Some of the churches uh, of Revelation 2 and 3. That's what we have going on there. Ordaining elders, then deacons. And deacon, again, now they've now got another plate, six plate going. And does that place necessarily come before ministerial training or after ministerial training or both at the same time? You're starting to train men for deacons. Now you're starting to think about some elders that are going to be teaching elders eventually in this culture. Does your pastor have all those plates spinning right now? See, sometimes people think missionaries have it hard. I say most missionaries have a lot less plates spinning. It's not any harder taking the gospel to a cross-cultural in a heathen nation than to try to maintain the gospel in a collapsing post-Christian culture. Don't forget that. Don't ever elevate cross-cultural ministers above ministers that God has called to maintain the ground that's been won by the Lord Jesus Christ. Winning new ground isn't necessarily harder than maintaining the ground that's been won. They're both difficult tasks. So ordaining elders, then you're, then, then you're ordaining deacons, you're ministerial training, and you're going back and you're still, your pastor still wears his shirt with his name and goes to public places and studies and has opportunities to engage in evangelistic. Right? So he could never stop plate one from spinning. Now, too many ministers do. I know in our denomination, we have some bivocational ministers, and it's very easy to, to stop plate one spinning. But that becomes a problem, doesn't it? If you, if you just think about covenantal evangelism to your children, and then, then you think you can just neglect evangelism in your community. That's, that's obviously not the way to do it. And obviously, ideally, the minister needs to set the example uh, in these things, right? Uh, and the elders. So ministerial training going on. Then, eventually, ordaining pastor teachers. At some point, I think Pastor Todd said five offices in Ephesians 4, and you know, we can kind of talk about pastor teacher, but clearly... I would argue, and we may have differences of opinion here, but I think in that, in my understanding, you can't be a teacher without being a pastor, but you can be a pastor without being a teacher. In other words, you're called to that office, you're an elder, and you're a pastor, and some pastors are called, not by themselves, but with an internal call and an external call from the presbytery after they've had years of experience and continued to be engaged in education, then at some point their presbyteries authorize them to begin to train the future teaching elders or pastors or ministers. Make sense? You don't take a kid right out of seminary, he's an MDiv, he's he's only ever watched, you know, artificial session meetings, or he sat in and watched, but he's never actually been in charge, right? He may have had a little um, scenario in seminary where he acted as though he was the 
the, the moderator of Presbytery of Recession. He never experienced it. He's not the guy that needs to be teaching the new, the future ministers yet. But eventually he may be. And eventually he, at some point, he should be being mentored by one that has been assigned that duty. And as I'm teaching three of our men right now, we're kind of, and three other ministers as well, we're starting to evaluate where are their strengths. Which guy might be my replacement? Which guy might be Mike Erickson's, the language guy's replacement? We're starting to recognize that already. Some people have a tendency to systematics or to historical theology or the languages. But all that's being worked out. It's being worked out in your midst. Then you've got to establish presbyteries. Now you have a second church that has elders that have been ordained. All the while, you're trying to create a relationship by, from that first church to that second. But at this point, it's still the external presbytery that's coming in and helping the churches. But when there's two or three, you're beginning to seek to morph them into a presbytery and eventually a presbytery where you don't even have to assist. You never interfere, but you assist for a while until they can do it themselves. And then at some point, then they become fraternally related and have a relationship with your presbytery, our presbytery, whatever presbytery is the sending presbytery. Right? In, all, in the midst of all this, we do have to think about the fact that the sending agent is the church generically, it's the presbytery, it's the presbytery by itself or through a committee, if it commissions and commits that work to a committee, that has to report to the presbytery, and the presbytery doesn't rubber stamp what the men on the committee do, but take an intimate engagement because they recognize they're members of a mission society too, and have a role to play, and ask the tough questions. Right? When all that's happening, then you know you've got a presbytery, right? and you've got something solid. You've, you've established that, and now you can work together. At some point, it's appropriate for the sending church, the sending presbytery synod, to assist the churches at some point in establishing what I would call secondary Ministries. What are they? Ministries that a church can have but doesn't have to have that's not absolutely within the scope of the Great Commission but can be part of that. How about a radio ministry? Is it okay for a church to have recorded sermons on the radio to encourage, to, for people to learn about the true and reformed religion? Certainly. We tried that for like the second year in, but the reality was people just tune into radios in Africa, but they're so busy, they're not really, it's just kind of noise. It's like Muzak. They hear it because they don't have anything else, but they're not really listening, and they certainly are not listening to white guys preaching uh, there. And when we didn't have enough indigenous men that could preach the Reformed faith faithfully, we said it's probably not time to do radio time. There may become a time again, but it's not now. But how about Christian education? Where are the students 
that are for, to, to get to ABC, where are they going to be trained in elementary school and secondary school, right? And we're not saying the church should be, the session should be responsible for a Christian school or assisting and, you know, orchestrating helps in homeschooling, but they can certainly be engaged in assisting those things. Again, I would refer to two great articles from John Murray on this. He has a great article on Christian education in Collected Writings. He also has a paper you may have not seen, but he, and I can, I'll get it to you, Todd, if you don't have it. He developed what was called the con- a Constitution for Parental Controlled Schools in Scotland. So he was an early, he, he recognized early the free church and the free church, um, the free peas in Scotland were making an error by continuing to keep their children in public education as long as they had. Um, they were operating, uh, they got in the habit, uh, obviously in Scotland they were oper- operating under a Knox perspective, right, in the civil magistrate actually taking an interest in Christianity and nation. When that was lost, they still left their kids in school for hundreds, hundreds of years. And as, right, as the culture collapsed, they were losing their children. So those kind of things are important. So we've got all those spinning. How about Christian culture? Is that something a session should be involved in, Christian impact and culture? What do you think? Now, a session's not responsible uh, for the poor. In, your, your session's not responsible for all the poor in Wiley. Right? It's not responsible for all their education or the like. But the reality is, Scripture has plenty, to th- say, plenty of things to say about how the ambassador, his ambassadors should speak to all institutions. Not just to the institution of the family, but to the institution of the state. So the church has a place to be God's voice to the state. The church also has an important place in educating the people that gather concerning biblical principles relative to culture and the transformation of it, the the biblical redemptive principles that should be applicable in our lives so that we might see some reforms in these areas. So we might see the judicial system restored uh, to something mirroring the principles of Scripture. And And so I would contend that's an important part. It's not a part that a minister like myself should go in there and start preaching against all the wrongs of the Liberian government. But we want to encourage those students that are going to be ministers to understand how to interpret scripture so that they can apply the scripture to the indigenous people so that those people can be faithful in the economy, right, and in the community and within the government. That's an important role. And so now you've got all these 12... Ultimately, that's what a church planter should be seeking to do, one at a time. And eventually, what happens at the end when you've got all those 12 plates spinning? It's time to leave. And you always have to remember the ultimate destination is to not need to go back except on some visits. 
Now, Paul's writing here in Romans, right? And he says, hey, I'm going to come to you. I've completed all the work that I've done in this region. He's not saying there's not a lot of gospel work to be done. He's going to send some of his entourage back to some of those places. He's going to write some of those places. He's going to visit some of them places himself. But he's saying there's a whole new territory. And I, as an apostle and an apostle to the Gentiles, I'm the right guy for this calling. And he's, I believe he's asking them when he says, will you help me or bring me away or bring me on my way on the journey? Uh, help me to be brought on my way to Spain. If you look at that in the original, he's saying, help me financially. And I think if he's saying, help me financially, he's saying, I, I, I believe he's suggesting he may be moving presbyteries. He's an apostle, but he's still got a place to report like he did when he went back to Pisidia Antioch, tell people what's going on. He's not always going to go back to Pisidia Antioch from Spain. He's envisioning he's going to have a shorter trip back to Rome. He can recharge his batteries. He can tell people what the Lord's doing in Spain through him. And that's what he's doing. So his plan was always to get out. And presbyteries need to have an exit strategy. And that will still include a relationship with the churches or church presbyteries that have been planted, synod. But it'll include letters. It'll include visits. Um, I would contend generally it's not ideal to ever really have a Westerner to be the elder or a minister in an indigenous church. That would be pretty extraordinary. But I kind of discussed that with your pastor yesterday and said, well, there may be a time where, for example, a couple moves to, let's say, Ukraine, and they're raising their children and have three or four children. They end up marrying Ukrainians that have come to Christ They've got grandchildren and children there. They may stay in Ukraine. It may be appropriate for them to move their membership from your presbytery or our presbytery to the new presbytery in Ukraine. Right? That would be legitimate because they basically have been indigenized. They basically have become a Ukrainian to some degree. They've understood that culture. But generally, it's best to get out. But theological education, I would contend, would probably take a little later, especially in places in Africa where the educational levels are four, maybe even more years behind. So you're probably going to leave some Westerners having some impact on theological education and ministerial training for a while longer than you would have men assisting in those churches that have been planted. Um, That's what is so, I think, so critical uh, in all of this work. But obviously, we've got to remember all these and the energy and all the efficacy in all those tasks that all center around church planting are all through the Lord's power. All. Think of Zechariah 4.6. The Lord speaks to Zechariah, who's asking him to speak to Zerubbabel. Then he answered and spake unto me. It's Zechariah saying, This is the word of the Lord unto Zerubbabel. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. 
How are we as people going to obtain the power of the Spirit? The disciples had to wait for the coming of the Spirit before they were sent out. Do you think if they rushed out, things would have been gone well? Remember when Israel tried that before? Couldn't wait for the Lord's timing? Rushed out on their own? They waited. And so we have to wait and tarry. We have to ask the Lord to bless us. But he's promised to give us good gifts, and he's told us the best gift he can give us is the Spirit. More of his influence in our own personal lives and in the life of our ministries and in the lives and ministries of those that are sent out cross-culturally and those that are engaged in church planting within our own culture. That's what I think uh, is so important. William Carey said, expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. Clearly, when he said expect great things for God, he implied pray for great things for God. He didn't say, like, just expect things to happen that are great. (laughs) Yeah. The power of positive thinking. No. And he said, expect great things for God. He said, ask God for big things. God surprises us. He shocks us, doesn't he? And I don't know. Maybe your pastor knows. I'll have to ask him. Whether we're just entering the third or fourth great Babylonian captivity, or whether we're just about to come out of it. I don't know. There are signs of both. But I know we're in a ditch. I just don't know if we're still going down or if we've reached and we're coming back up. I don't know that. I don't know when the Lord is going to be pleased to engraft ethnic Israel in great numbers. But I know it will happen. And I know when that happens, God will bring in the fullness of the Gentiles. And his knowledge will be spread uh, as the oceans spread. The oceans are spread throughout this world. So let us pray that the Lord would hasten that and hasten the return of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's rise for prayer. And would it be appropriate if I pray for the food as well? Let's pray. Our great God and heavenly Father, we thank thee that thou hast drawn us to thyself. Uh, We were once not thy sheep, and now we are. We thank thee that we are part of your church your gathered ones, your called out ones. We thank thee that we are part of a missionary society ourselves, that having uh, received thy grace, uh, having received our peace with thee, who were once rebels, we thank thee that thou hast called us to this wonderful, this beautiful opportunity to take your gospel to those who know you not. Oh, we ask that you would be pleased to accompany us by thy spirit as we seek these tasks in thy name and give thee all the glory for the increase that comes. We thank thee for our time together. We ask that thou wouldst be pleased to bless uh, the, to the nourishment of our bodies of this food. And we pray that thou wouldst well bless our fellowship together uh, this afternoon. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.